Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, August the 23rd, 2023. A couple of very interesting headlines today. Um, one from The Verge about how one day brain implants can might be able to restore communications with people with paralysis. New York Times reports on something similar, the way in which AI is able to restore someone's ability to speak, to somehow replicate their brain, all very inspiring and optimistic. In our age where people are somewhat fearful, even sometimes apocalyptic about AI, artificial intelligence, which I guess in a broad sense is a way of trying to uh, create artificial minds, artificial brains. Uh, one man who's given a great deal of thought, a lifetime's thought to neuro neuroscience in the brain is my guest today. Rafael Yuste is a professor of neuroscience uh, at Columbia University, one of America's leading universities, and he has a new book out. It's just out, Lectures in Neuroscience. Uh, and he's joining us from his home um, in the Upper West Side of New York. Raphael, welcome. Congratulations on the book. Um, should we view some of these pieces with a pinch of salt? The idea that brain implants could one day restore communications for people with paralysis, it seems almost magical. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me here. It's uh, not magical. It's, uh, it's not science fiction. It's, it's science. It's medicine. This is happening. And this is one of the reasons that I'm, I'm bullish about neurotechnology is so that we can end up helping these patients with brain diseases. It's not just paralysis. I mean, if you think about it, everyone in the show uh, has personal experience with friends or family that suffer from some sort of brain disease, either Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, epilepsy, mental handicap, paralysis, stroke, you name it. No? And we know perfectly well as medics that there's very little we can do for this patient because we need the technology to get into the brain to be able to decode what's happening and to change it in order to alter the prognosis of these patients. So it's not at all uh, hype. Uh, this, is, uh, the, this is science and this is the way that science is evolving right now. It's almost a truism today, Raphael, uh, that people say that the human brain is, is the most intricate and complicated object in the known universe. I remember having someone on the show and said that, and I was, I have to admit, somewhat skeptical, and I'm anything <laughs> but an expert in this area. Is there any truth to that? Well, um, I mean, it's a little uh, exaggerated, but it is an absolutely fascinating piece of matter uh, of an enormous complexity. I mean, think of it, uh, your brain has about 86 billion neurons and each of the neurons is connected to probably about another 100,000 neurons. So you do the numbers, the connectivity of the brain is equivalent to three times the entire internet of the earth. This is each of our brains, okay? Just imagine that you're walking around with three internets inside your, your head. No? So uh, we know very little about how the brain works. We know a lot about 
well, the, the molecular and cellular components of the brain, but we haven't really put that jigsaw puzzle together yet. No? But the one thing that we do know, and it was already known by the Egyptians, okay, is that the brain is the site of all the mental and cognitive abilities of humans. No? So this is essentially what defines us as a species, our thoughts, our memories, our emotions, our imaginations, our behavior, all of that doesn't come out of thin air, but it's actually generated by that uh, those three internets that we have inside our, our head, no, inside our skull. Yeah, it's a, it's 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 a very uh, interesting way of putting it, Raphael. We are walking around with three internets in our skull. Uh, you talk about each of us having around eighty-six billion neurons. What is a neuron? So a neuron is a, is a cell. Uh, that has a particular uh, characteristic. It's electric, electrically excitable. Uh, in fact, it looks a little bit like a transistor. It can either be on and off with an electrical signal of about 100 millivolts. And this, again, every one of these 80,000 neurons is connected to, let's say, another 100,000 neurons. We don't really know the exact number. And receives connection from another 100,000 neurons. So it's a little um, unit in a gigantic network. And uh, the biggest challenge in, in neuroscience, and one of the biggest challenges in mysteries in biology, I would say, is how the joint activity of these networks of neurons, how somehow they magically generate our minds. Our so thoughts. we don't know how those neurons actually connect. We know we've got all these neurons if you like, the operating system is still a mystery. That's right. We, we figure out, I mean, neuroscientists have been at it for 100 years, uh, generation after generation, in a network that stretches through space and time. We're part of the same team. And some of the brightest minds of every generation have gone into figuring out, trying to figure out how the brain works. Uh, and we know a lot about how the neurons are actually physically touching each other and how they tickle each other and they fire each other. But what we're missing is what's, uh, what we call the neural circuit uh, level. Um, and imagine you have a computer, you open up a computer and you find that it's built out of transistors. So, well, that's great, but that doesn't help you understand what the computer does because you have to figure out how these transistors are connected and in their connection, they build circuits that implement particular mathematical functions and using those functions, your software can actually operate. So we're in neuroscience. We're at the level in which we know the transistors, so to speak. We are starting to figure out the connections, but we're still not there. Uh, uh, we're missing what is the circuit circuit level, and we're missing, of course, the algorithms and the and the and the software that that so to speak. So would it be fair to say that? At this point in August of 2023, we're relatively ignorant about how the brain operates. Uh, we're ignorant, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. And we know we're in a tunnel, Raphael. There's no doubt about that. We're totally in a tunnel. We've been in a tunnel for uh, 2,000 years. But in the last 20 years, through the application of new neurotechnologies, of new methods to measure the activity of many neurons, at once and to be able to turn on and off neurons selectively, we're starting to see, some of us are starting to, to join a hypothesis 
that could explain how you go from the activity of individual neurons to the human mind. How do you go from neural activity to thought? How did you get into this? Um, you're, a, as I said, you're a professor uh, at Columbia University, one of the, the great universities in America. Did you stumble into this? Have you always had a calling? Where were you born? I'm Spanish. I'm from Madrid, from the uh, center of the town. Uh, I uh, was turned into, into a fledgling scientist by my mother when I was 14. She gave me as a birthday present a book called Microbe Hunters from the Cruyff. Uh, it's a beautiful uh, history of the glorious uh, years of bacteriology where people like Pasteur and Koch and Spallanzani figure out that infectious diseases were created by bacteria. And uh, that was to me uh, like a, a calling to my heart because uh, it painted this romantic idea in my, in my mind of these scientists that are uh, working in the basements of their institutes, uh, huddled over their microscopes, isolated from the world, uh, anonymous many times, and they're discovering the secrets that uh, help humanity. No? And I, I decided that's what I want to do when I grow up. I want to be one of those scientists that is uh, looking at the microscope in the basement and figuring out the secrets of life. And then uh, neuroscience was a very logical choice. Being a Spanish, Spaniard, the, the most important scientist in the history of Spain is Santiago Ramón y Cajal, who's the father or the grandfather of neuroscience. He worked about 100 years ago, and he was the one mostly responsible for the idea that the brain is built out of individual neurons. This is what we call the neuron doctrine, that the single neuron is the unit of structure and function of the brain. So everywhere you go in Spain, there are... Uh, Streets named after Cajal, schools named after him. Uh, and he was a wonderful writer. He wrote these spectacular books, very candid about himself, about his problems. And uh, so I became a Cajalian. And I was always also very interested in philosophy. Um, uh, in high school, that was my favorite topic. I used to to read uh, in the uh, Waiting for the Bus uh, the Critic of the Pure Reason by Kant. And uh, and so all these things merged together in a career uh, studying uh, the brain as a scientist with a microscope to try to understand how the brain generates the mind. So I think all of these things have been uh, threaded together in, in my life. I've been lucky. I've been privileged. I've been able to go in this direction. And I had wonderful mentors, particularly one mentor in Cambridge in England, Sidney Brenner, uh, who was also a medic uh, like myself. I, I was trained in medicine, and he took me under his wing in his lab, uh, uh, and uh, he essentially uh, yanked me out of medicine and threw me into research. And he also shipped me to the U.S. Uh, he said, uh, go west, young man, and uh, I never looked back. It's interesting talking about Cambridge. Um, old friend of mine, Martin Rees, I'm sure you're familiar with yes. his work, the Astronomer General, 
he's been on the show and I've talked to him many, many times over the years about the awesome nature of looking into space. I'm guessing that the experience of looking at all these neural networks is a similarly awesome, perhaps even spiritual experience, isn't it? It's, it's not just spiritual. It's also aesthetic. These neurons are absolutely beautiful. Um, I'm in awe at the beauty of nature. In fact, if I had to argue what drives my career is the pursuit of beauty. <laughs> uh, as scientists, uh, you don't normally think of scientists uh, as in the same category as artists, but I think we're made out of the same stuff. No? Uh, you take a painter and the painter works in a studio, which is normally all messy and with all kinds of paints and half have uh, finished pieces of work all over the place. And he or she expresses uh, his or her ideas in an imagination and creative process and puts them in, onto a canvas. No? So scientists, we're, we're just the same. No? We work in laboratories, which if you walk into my laboratory, you're like, oh my God, I cannot believe how disorganized this is. There are all kinds of computer circuits, uh, electrodes, uh, molecular reagents all over the place. No? And that's our canvases are uh, the setups with which we do our experiments and we paint um, our, using our creativity and our imagination, the ideas that we're trying to test and we contrast them with nature. And if nature says check, then we go and publish them into a, a, our, 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 our work, which are research papers, which I take pride of crafting them as beautiful objects, just like an artist would craft a beautiful painting. So we, we, we write beautiful papers. We try to make beautiful arguments, tell a story, illustrate it beautifully. And that's what we pass to, to the rest of the world. And this aesthetics you talk about, the beauty of the brain, it's, it's, it's the aesthetics of, of systems, isn't it? The way in which all these things fit together. Maybe we don't understand it. I, I assume, in a way, Raphael, it puts us, even though we've got these brains, in our place, doesn't it? Well, um, there's two, two things to your question. First of all, the aesthetic um, process of creation, of creating beauty, which I would argue in science is just resembles the same as in the arts. It's the same process. It, we just create with different media. No? Uh, there is a moment in, in the life of a scientist when you finally understand something. It's like when you put together the jigsaw puzzle, like, oh my God, click, that's the last piece, everything fits. No? And that moment, uh, it's unforgettable. That's also what drives us. No? I had a few of those moments in my life and I go to the lab every morning at seven in the morning, anxious because of the possibility of understanding something uh, that, that no one understands. And uh, this uh, reminds me of uh, the, the particular day in which I decided to, to switch from medicine into science when I was in Sydney Brenner's lab. And, uh, and uh, they told me the story, uh, uh, that's of how Sidney, Francis Creek, and Leslie Barnett uh, performed the experiment that confirmed, that discovered that the genetic code had three letters. 
And this was a super elegant, one of the most beautiful experiments I've ever heard of in my life. No, it was like playing chess against nature. And uh, they did the final move and it was checkmate. So they figure out the genetic code has three letters. And Crick famously told Leslie, Leslie, do you realize that we're the only people in the world that know that the genetic code has three letters? So this idea, this is what, what gets me out of bed every morning. We're playing chess against nature. We're trying to figure out how the brain works and we're getting close to the end game. And one of these days we're going to say, checkmate. This is the way the, way the brain works. And then that day I could turn around and said, we're the only people in the world that know how the brain works. Yeah, <laughs> that, that should be the course. title of your next, I'm, probably someone already has it as a title, playing chess against nature. Um, it's a fascinating conversation and, and, uh, you, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come to Columbia, and I think I'm gonna major in neuroscience, Raphael, because you, you put it in language that makes sense even to non-scientists like myself. Uh, we're talking with Raphael Yuste, a professor of neuroscience at Columbia University, one of the world's leading neuroscientists. He has a new book out, Lectures in Neuroscience, which presents all this stuff in very accessible, coherent way. Um, I want to take a, a short break. Thank our sponsor of this show, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics that uh, puts culture and politics in an accessible way for ordinary readers. We're going to run a short ad for that, and then we'll be back with Rafael Yuste, the author of Lectures in Neuroscience, to talk a bit more specifically about the book itself. So don't go away, everyone. This is a fascinating conversation. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties and find out more at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking uh, with the, the great neuroscientist at Columbia University, Rafael Yusto, who has uh, a new book out, it's out uh, this month, Lectures in Neuroscience. It's accessible, Rafael, but you are offering your own particular theory, at least that's my understanding. You suggest that the conventional idea of the brain is that it's an input-output machine that reacts reflectively to sensory stimuli. But you argue something else. Is that fair? Yes, that's totally uh, fair. That's the whole point of the book. No? Uh, I was telling you earlier that uh, we still don't understand how the brain works. We've been at it now for over 100 years. Uh, and uh, the current model of how the brain works, the one that's in every single textbook in neuroscience in the first chapter, is that the brain is made out of neurons, thanks to Cajal, and that these neurons are connected in particular ways, and that the brain is a machine that reacts to sensory stimulus and through some sort of packet brigade generates a behavior, a motor output. Okay, And this idea was actually coined and, and, and burned into the soul of neuroscience by one of Cajal's contemporaries, uh, Charles Sherrington, who was also in, uh, in, in Cambridge. And, uh, and he argued that the brain is a table of reflexes. 
he actually studied the, the knee-jerk reflex, and he figured out how that works. As you know, the knee-jerk reflex, if you tap the, the, your knee, then you can get a, a little uh, stretching of your leg. No? And he figured out this, the, the neural mechanisms of how that happens. I said, oh, this is easy. The brain is old. It's like a gigantic phone book of reflexes. No? When you... Uh, uh, see something in the outside, you something starts to move inside, and boom, and you perform a behavior. No? You see the ball coming towards you when you're playing football, and then you process that information and you kick your leg to hit the ball. The problem is that this model, although it's very appealing and simple, has really uh, not um, brought home the bacon. We've been at it for 100 years, and we still don't understand how the brain works. In fact, we still don't even understand what happens to the brain when it breaks down, the mental or neurological diseases. So um, it's funny enough that in the same lab as Sherrington, there was a young student, uh, uh, Graham Brown was his last name, and he was quite a rebel. And he uh, started uh, to roll the ball of the possibility that the brain is not just an input-output machine. It's something different. It has its own agenda. It has an internal rhythm, an internal activity that is the whole purpose of the brain is to generate this internal activity. And when you get an outside stimulus, sometimes you react to it with a behavior, sometimes you don't, and vice versa. You may have a behavior without having an outside stimulus. So you, you focus from uh, input-output, you focus the light on the inside, on the intrinsic activity. And these new technologies that have been developed in the last 20 years, and I've been a very strong uh, proponent and part of it, of this group of people that have developed these methods to record the activity of groups of neurons in the brain, is demonstrating over and over again that Graham Brown was right, that the brain is all about this intrinsic activity pattern. And if this is the case, then we can finally build an intellectual bridge that connects the activity of the neurons with a thought. And if we cannot do that, then we can try to start to explain the human mind in biological terms. And this would be... In a sense, does this suggest that the brain is almost a universe itself or that there is no real separation between the individual brain and the world? Well, so uh, we're not the first ones to argue that. In fact, it was Immanuel Kant, <laughs> whom I read. Yeah, uh, I, I was thinking that. Yeah, so he, he fired the first shot. Well, you could argue the first shot was fired by Plato. No? But Kant definitely got it right uh, smack into the bullseye no? because he said, wait a minute, the reason why our mind agrees with the world could be because our mind reflects the world, which is what the British empiricists had argued, like Hume and Locke and Barclay. Or, he said, what if it's the opposite? If the world reflects our mind, if what we think it's out there, in reality, it's all in here. And this is exactly the point of the book, to try to tell that story from the point of view of science with modern discoveries, and with hardcore data, the ship is pointing directly into Kant's direction. <laughs> uh, I would argue that what we perceive as reality is internally generated. 
It's 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 a remarkably fascinating observation or argument. Throwing another big scientific thinker in here, Darwin. Um, does this suggest that there was some natural process? I mean, the brain hasn't always been as it is. Is that fair, uh, Raphael? That yep. it's never standing still, and as Darwin suggested, uh, it's 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 evolution reflects what a, a form of survival, uh, an attempt to conquer the world around us or integrate the world? Um, I would argue the brain is evolution at its best. Uh, nature invented the first nervous systems about 750 million years ago, at the end of the idea of Karen. And these are the Cnidarians, uh, whose modern relatives are jellyfishes, corals, sea anemone, and hydrozoans. And it turns out that uh, uh, according to this point of view that I'm defending in the book, the whole reason why evolution invents the nervous system is to be able to predict the future, okay? Because if you're a species that you can predict the future, you have a leg up in evolution, survival of the fittest. Well, guess what? You're more intelligent. You're going to see what's coming. You'll be able to, to survive. You'll be able to avoid being, being eaten or eat in <laughs> this prey predator uh, competition. You'll be able to find the right mate and reproduce more than the, the, the poor guy next to you who cannot predict the future. No? And uh, it turns out that to predict the future, according to this theory, uh, what the brain is doing is generating a virtual reality model of the world. And it's running that model backwards and forwards in, order, in, order, in, other, in other words, to try to see which direction the world around us is going. Now, because nature has 750 million years to sculpt out that model and to sharpen it up, it's such a good model that as humans, we confuse the model with the reality. That's how good it is. And only sometimes when we're asleep, when we're having hallucinations, or when daydreaming, there's a disconnection between what's in our head and the real world. But most of the time, it's really accurate. In fact, it's very difficult to find uh, under the rock the places where the two things don't match, and that's those... I illustrate a lot of those examples in the book because that's where you can point out the in this chess game with nature, you can say, checkmate, I know what you're up to. I figure out what you're trying to do here. Yeah, so in a way, Raphael, what you're arguing, or if your argument's correct, AI itself is a, a piece of all this. There's nothing unnatural about AI. In a way, um, the attempt to predict the future and create this virtual reality of the world, that's what AI is. So, so AI is um, a literal extension of the brain. Is that absurd or fair? I don't know. I mean, I, I, uh, I would stick to, uh, to what I know uh, Best, well, you you, which is you you know about all this AI work. I'm sure you've I, read I, about I, it. I you may not be an know. AI expert, but are they, That's right. in a sense, borrowing your narrative to apply to um, technology? I don't know. I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> whatever anyone can borrow, whatever they want. Now, uh, no, and I don't I mean think... that critically. I mean it's almost, yeah. uh, but it, it, it makes a lot of sense, and it it brings a much more human 
element to AI because if if what you're saying is right, it makes AI very human. Well, I interpret AI as algorithms to solve optimization problems, which is essentially problems uh, where you're choosing for an optimal solution within a whole variety of different uh, pot- possibilities. No? And, and so people use the term artificial intelligence, but to me, it's actually a metaphor of a metaphor. First of all, we don't even know what is natural intelligence. That, so the word intelligent for me is a metaphor for a bunch of higher cognitive abilities that humans and other animals have. So when you talk about artificial intelligence, you assume that you know what is the natural intelligence and that you're sort of replicating it in a, in a computer. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't go that far. I think the AI, which I completely, uh, um, I mean, admire and, and, and use it in our research and, and in our lives, no? Um, it's 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 an incredible useful tool, but I would take this to be just another tool that humans have built in our long history. I mean, we're tool builders. Uh, if I can quote another philosopher of uh, Martin Heidegger, who defines humans, this is the species that builds tools. So this is just another tool. This is yeah. So and, and I guess tool. I'm trying to say that it's a brain tool. You mentioned dreams. How does dream? How how do dreams? fit into this narrative. Uh, I, so, were you suggesting that a dream is the brain functioning at half pace or in a different way, in a surreal way without the world? Andrew, we know so little about the brain that we still don't know what the hell is a dream and what the hell are they good for. So that tells you how ignorant we are as neuroscientists. It's embarrassing that we cannot explain what our brain is doing one third of our time on earth. <laughs> we're sleeping and we're dreaming. I, I cannot tell you uh, that it's clear what exactly is a dream, what is the, the function of a dream. Right, and, and, and Freud, of course, famously argued that the dreams reflect our reality. Is that still conceivable? I don't know. I think, I mean, I, I, uh, I, would, I would label this as an opinion rather than a scientific uh, theory. <laughs> Mm. Uh, of Freud, with all my uh, respects to uh, to him, to his work, no, uh, which of course he didn't have access to the data that we have today, no. Uh, but there's something critical about sleeping and dreaming. You know, if you deprive an animal of sleep and a human of, s- of sleep, you end up killing the the animal or the person. And if you um, if you uh, reduce the dreams, you have major impacts on cognitive abilities of human on memory. So. So it's it's linked to probably I'm just speculating here, but for this machine to keep itself running smoothly, this brain machine, this endogenous activity that Graham Brown dreamt of, no, the dreams are something fundamental. They may be doing the clean up, cleaning up of the of the uh, metabolites or fixing up the broken wires. Something that's really uh, absolutely so it's critical. fixing itself. That's a fascinating way of putting it. Uh, Raphael, you know as well as I do, you live in New York. We live at a time of great pessimism. Everyone fears that humans have screwed up on every front, political, cultural, above all else, uh, environmental in terms of other species. We've done lots of shows with naturalists of one kind or another, environmentalists who suggest that humans have much to learn from other species, from the birds, from the bees, from other mammals. My understanding is that no other species, no other 
form of life have brains which compete in any way with what we have as humans. Is that fair? And should we be a little bit more, should we be prouder of our brains, of our place in the universe, this remarkable uh, system, this 86 billion neurons that we still don't really understand? Um, well, first of all, I think the, uh, and definitely uh, more on the positive side of the history of humanity and the moment that we live in, uh, I, uh, I think what we do live is in a moment of great exaggeration, great hype, and great uh, um, uh, tr tremendism, as they say in Spanish. No? Um, for whatever reason, I don't want to get into into the sociology of that. No, but if I look back as a scientist, as an and as a medic, the progression of humanity in the last hundred years has been spectacular. I mean, even in my own life. When I went to medical school, over half of the cancers were deadly. Now you 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 can fix, you can cure ninety percent of cancers. Um, so of course, there's. I'm not saying that we don't have major problems ahead, but uh, I, I would. Uh, I'm I'm a firm believer in the ability of science and medicine, which is the application of science to health. Uh, to, to help humanity, you know, and in principle, there's no problem big enough that we cannot uh, all work together, particularly the scientists, and, and, and solve it. You know? So with respect to the other species, uh, again, as a scientist, as a medic, I can tell you that we're just like any other mammal. We have it. We're, we're, uh, we have our brains. The chassis that we have is the same chassis that other mammals have. In the laboratory, we study mice. Mice are mammals, and they share a lot of on the, the same brain that we have. We just have a larger brain. And we should be proud of our large brain because it could be the pinnacle of evolution in terms of this ability to predict the future. Uh, if that's what the brain is doing, and I would argue that, in, I'm arguing that in the book, um, if you compare ourselves with other animals, uh, we can see deeper into the future than any other animal. Imagine you take a fly, you know? So maybe the fly is worried about what's going to happen in the next five seconds of its life. You take a little uh, uh, slack, or uh, maybe they're worried about the next day. Or take a mouse. Maybe the mouse is worried about uh, the next uh, few days. But you take a human, and we're worried about what's going to happen to the human species for thousands of years. So we, we have this, this uh, virtual reality model of the world that is also extremely precise, not the the large we do have probably the uh, uh, the most dense neural network in the in terms of brain circuitry of any other species. If you take together not just the number of neurons but the number of connections for our body size, we're just way out of proportion. In fact, one sign of this is the fact that our heads are gigantic and. Uh, nature cannot make our heads bigger because we wouldn't be able to be born through the birth canals of women. So, uh, and that's why, I don't know if you, you know this, when a, a baby is born, you can actually, it's incredible to watch that, as it gets pushed through the birth canal, as soon the the, um, the blades of the skull are overlapping on top of each other. And as soon as it's out, they finally pop up and then the head becomes larger and then he cannot go back in. <laughs> that's it. So that tells you that evolution is increasing the size of our brain, particularly the size of our cerebral cortex as much as possible because in this evolutionary game, the survival of the fittest, 
we definitely have a, a leg up here having this great uh, uh, processor to compute the future. You talk about the survival of the fittest. You talked about Immanuel Kant as well, who, of course, was the great moralist. Uh, what's your theory of how the brain generates morality? Are these bound up with one another? Are some of these billions of neurons, are they creating our sense of good and evil? Or does that come from somewhere else? Uh, it comes from there because there's nothing else. <laughs> it's not like we have another uh, another organ in the body that generates morality. No, no, it comes from the brain. That's where it's at. But we don't understand how. I don't know how it comes, uh, morality is generated. And I would argue that it's not just humans. Uh, I, I, I just argued a second ago that we're just another another mammal. I'm sure that uh, the moral thought and responsibility and compassion is shared uh, with other species, no? Uh, and why we have that? So that's a fascinating question. Maybe there's an evolutionary advantage to having more morality for the survival, not of the individual, for the survival of the species. No? Uh, maybe that's the reason. And I think that was an argument made by uh, Stephen Jay Gould, no? that there is there is some uh, elements of species-driven uh, rules that get embedded in the societies of, of humans. No? Well, finally, a fascinating conversation, Rafael. Um, for me, at least, as someone who doesn't understand neuroscience, and I, and I know your book uh, is designed for that audience, Lectures in Neuroscience. Um, you mentioned that we are playing chess against nature, but we've only just started. We're nowhere near the end of the game, although there is light at the end of the tunnel. What happens... When that game ends, will we be able to fix conditions like Alzheimer's? What's what? What would be the result of understanding this system that you say, for the most part, we're still yeah. fairly ignorant about? Two outcomes. The first one is to understand scientifically who we are, what is the human mind, what defines a human being what is the scientific mechanisms and reasons of that generates our thoughts, our morality, our emotions, our love, our, our memories, everything that we are. And that, I think, is going to be a new renaissance. If you look at the history of humanity, the renaissance, we come out of the, of the Middle Ages, um, and suddenly we figure out that we're not the center of the universe. We're just another species in this big planet. And that had a tremendous positive impact in society, in politics, in science, in art, in medicine. It was a revolution. That's why they call it the Renaissance. So we think we're approaching the Renaissance 2.0, where we're going to finally understand who the hell we are. We've been at it for thousands of years. This is the heart of philosophy. What is a human being? What is the human mind? Imagine understanding that. And then the second reason, which is even more important, has to do, as you mentioned, with the patients. Um, uh, the reason uh, that we urgently need to understand how the brain works is because as a medic, if you want to deal with a disease, if you want to cure a disease, you have to understand what we call the pathophysiology, which is a complicated word, but it's actually very simple. Uh, the Pathophysiology is when the function of an organ, the physiology of the organ, 
goes pathological. Okay. In order to understand the pathophysiology, you first have to understand the physiology, the function of the organ. So you go to the heart disease. Well, guess what? We understand the function of the heart, the physiology. We understand the pathophysiology, let's say a heart attack, and we can go and help the patient and save some of them. No? Uh, but with brain diseases, guess what? We don't understand the physiology, let alone the pathophysiology. So, but with this uh, new understanding of how the brain works, we'll be able to put the foundations. So it's like a, like a building so that the next level up, the clinicians will jump in and say, oh my God, now I, I have the physiology. Let's go for the pathophysiology of every one of these brain diseases. What is schizophrenia? What happens in Alzheimer? What happens in epilepsy? One by one. And just like uh, if you go back in history and look at the, at the continuous progress of, of medicine, step by step, uh, we'll get there. I'm sure we'll get there. So I think that that's the, uh, the future that I work for, that I strive for, and that I've devoted my whole life to.